Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, guys, for leading us the way you did this morning. As Jeff just mentioned, we're kicking off a new series, and this is going to really help us dig down into the good news that we are carriers of and help equip us to be people who are able to share this good news with others. Um, to get where we are, um, we've been really deliberate in just pray, prayerfully just saying, Jesus, would you, would you lead us? Would you shape us? Would you take us where you want to take us as your church? And um, you've heard our story, I think, as we've gone through COVID last year and we were um, forced to pause for a little while and some real clear um, convictions came out of that for us, which will continue to shape who we are and what we're doing. But I want to just take a quick look right now at, at the focuses we've the focuses we've had for the last few years. Now we're very confident that God has got us on a clear trajectory of being others focused and on mission here in the Central Coast and wider wherever this goes. And so in 2018, God gave us this focus that we would see and we would look forward to a harvest beyond our wildest dreams. And then the following year, God put this at the forefront. He said, we are to present ourselves as building stones for a sanctuary vibrant with life in which you'll serve as holy priests, offering Christ-approved lives up to God. And I remember doing a message around that holy priest, that a priest is someone who helps connect people to God and helps God connect to people. And that's something that God's calling us to be. Last year during COVID, we had this strong conviction that we would be encouraged to enlarge our house build an addition, spread out our home and spare no expense. And this is one of the core convictions that came out that our home would be a primary place of discipleship for us going forward. And then this year, you're probably familiar with our focus for this year, that I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. So as I've looked at just the last four years, there's this thread that seems really clear. We are to look forward to multiplication. We are to get our hearts and our homes ready. We're to get out there. We're to find common ground because the mission is in our hands. God is using us, inviting you and I to be on mission with him to draw people into relationship with himself. And so the challenge before us we find now is actually a really practical one. How do we progress from finding that common ground with our neighbours and our friends and our family and our co-workers and colleagues, finding that common ground, actually sharing with them the gospel, the good news? And then I thought, well, I need to actually take a step back a little bit even from that and say, do we even have a good handle on what the good news actually is? And if we do... Do we feel equipped and confident and maybe even qualified to share that with others? And that has led us to where we find ourselves now and what we're about to step into. You know, one of the key uh, scriptures or, or commands 
that we find in Scripture that has really helped shape where we are now, and this is the, the one that I think our kids might engage with this morning as well, comes out of 1 Peter, and you're probably familiar with it. And Peter writes this, he says, In your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. So our conviction, as Jeff just mentioned to us, our conviction is that the Gospel of John will actually be a really key text in helping us do this. It'll help equip us. It'll help bring revelation just at the right time for where God has brought us to, where God is leading us to. And I think that as we sit in the book of John you know, for months coming up, we're going to find that God's going to do something in us and through us so that we're equipped to be ready in the place that he has placed us. So looking forward to this. So today I just want to do a bit of an overview of John's Gospel. Um, next week we'll actually get into um, chapter 1 and start to unpack that. But today I just want to do a broad brushstroke of what's in John's Gospel. Um, and so as we do that... I was reminded of, um, I went on a trip to Israel a few years ago and we did a lot of sightseeing. There was lots of special places to go and visit and you'll go to these special places and you'll take photos and then later that night, because all our photos are digital, um, you'd meet up with a few other people in the group and you'd look at their photos and they're the same. Same photos of the same things and it pretty much looks exactly the same. And so... I just had this thought that um, the gospel accounts, and there are four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are more like portraits rather than photos. So when you see a portrait of somebody, um, you, you could have somebody modeling and you could have four different people painting a portrait of that person and they will look different. There'll be some things that are the same, but there'll be some things that are different because each person will see something differently and each person will perceive something differently, and each person will think something is maybe a bit more important than, than something else. And so it's a bit like that with the Gospels. So we've got Mark, who most scholars would say he spent a lot of time with Peter, the, the disciple Peter, and got his teachings from Peter and wrote about it. Mark is about what Jesus did. It's action-packed. It's the shortest of the Gospel accounts. Matthew and Luke... Not so much about what Jesus did and more about what Jesus said. And Matthew was really concerned about what Jesus said to the Jewish people. And Luke was probably a bit more concerned about what Jesus said to the Gentiles, to the non-Jewish people. And so they're those three Gospels and they're actually quite similar and share a lot of stories. Um, and, and there's a word called the synoptic. They're the synoptic Gospels because um, there's a lot of familiarity and, and, and same content in them. John is different. And now John, we, we, as we read through it, he's probably a bit more concerned about who Jesus is than what Jesus did and said. And that's a big difference as we read through them. If you've read all four Gospels, you would have noticed that John just reads a bit differently. So we're going to walk through John's Gospel. One writer that I came across this week put it like this. He said, John's Gospel enables you to understand who Jesus is as a person so that at the end of the gospel, you know Jesus. And to know Jesus is to know 
eternal life. And that's going to be a theme that's going to come right through, not only today, but as we journey through this. So John's Gospel, there's 21 chapters. Now, John didn't write in chapters. That's something that's been put in later, chapters and verses. But when we look at it, the chapters 1 to 11, so about half of the Gospel, is covering about three years of Jesus' ministry. And then chapters 12 through to 21 covers only a few weeks in time. In fact, the majority of that covers one week, what we call the Passion Week, that week of Jesus leading up to his death and resurrection. Now, one thing that struck me with this, and this is not new for me, a lot of writers would mention this. John wrote this gospel account. It's the, it's the last thing written nearly in the Bible. Um, John did a lot of his writing as an old man, probably around anywhere from the year 80 AD through to about 90 AD. And so what John wrote, he was really deliberate with what he wrote. Imagine as a teenager spending time with Jesus, literally three years with Jesus, and then you spend all your adult life up until old age telling people about that and recalling the stories and writing some things down. And maybe as you're getting near to the end, you think, okay, I need a good account of this. And so you would have all these things that you could draw from. And John was really deliberate with what he included in his gospel. And now we've got to remember that. So who was John? Well, he was a Jewish man, um, probably a young man when Jesus first called him. Most people, most scholars would say probably a teenager. He was a fisherman by trade. He was the son of Zebedee and his brother was James. And James was also one of Jesus' disciples, one of the twelve some writers would think that he was possibly even a cousin of Jesus. Hard to prove that. He was one of the inner circle, one of the inner sanctum. There was Peter, James, and John. There was three disciples that seemed quite often to have um, special privileges, special insights into what was going on. Um, so he was one of the inside three, um, possibly and probably uh, Jesus' closest friend. He was the last of the 12 apostles to die, and he wrote 20% of the New Testament. He wrote his gospel account. There are three small letters that we call 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, and he had the revelation of Jesus Christ, which is the last book we find in the Bible. So the purpose in John writing the gospel, I'll let him explain why. We find this at the end of chapter 20. He writes this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That is why John wrote this gospel account. Now, it's interesting, John would have written this book in Greek. And in the Greek language that John would have used, there is a present continuous tense for verbs. Okay, I don't know if you're getting that. There is a present continuous tense. You know how our tense is sort of past tense, present tense, future tense? There is a present continuous tense that's used. And that's not easily translated into English. 
So the word believe that we just read is not a one-off decision, but it's actually a continuous action or a continuous posture or position that one would hold. So essentially what John is saying in this is saying that these are written that you may go on believing that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by going on believing, you may go on having life in his name. It's not a one-off thing. This is a continuous moment-by-moment, day-by-day posture that we bring, that our belief is not mental assent to something, but it's shaping the whole of our life. So John makes it really clear that Jesus is fully human and fully God. And he makes it really clear that only one who is both fully God and fully human can save people from their sins and restore relationship to God the Father. John makes it clear that Jesus' humanity enabled him to die on our behalf and his authority as God himself enables him to conquer death and offer true life to anyone who believes in him. See, John shows us an intimate portrait of Jesus as a human being. We can relate to him in some of life's circumstances. As we read through John's account, we see that Jesus wept when he was upset. We see him being hungry and tired and thirsty and surprised and disappointed and angry. We see the full gamut of human emotion come out and human experience in Jesus Christ. John shows us a human life fully lived in relationship with God and relationship with one another. John shows us how as a human, Jesus depended on prayer with God the Father to help connect him and Jesus needed to pray to hear from his Father so he knew what to do and where to go and what to say. Jesus himself says this, He says, very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. By myself, Jesus says, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. John also took careful detail to explain around the death and resurrection of Jesus from a physical point of view, that he was actually dead, that he was actually alive again three days later. And he gives some key details to help support these claims. And in the midst of all of this, in the way John writes his his account and brings it all together, John helps us understand Jesus as being fully God because of the cleverness of his writing. And one of the most noticeable ways he does this is actually through using the number seven. Now, the number seven is seen as the perfect number in Hebrew thinking and culture. The number seven, when used throughout biblical accounts, is used to denote completion and perfection and the fulfillment of promises. Seven, it's a key number. So what we see as we read through John's gospel, we see him using groups of seven. So there's seven titles and seven miracles and seven statements and seven witnesses. And all these are purposely 
included and designed and structured, not so that we would think there's hidden codes in there, but just to bring some further evidence that this story is the story of God in the flesh doing what he needs to do uh, to bring humanity back to relationship with him. Just quickly looking through this, the seven titles, even in chapter 1, these are things people say about the person Jesus, who they think he is. So we see these titles, the Lamb of God and the Son of God, and the King of Israel and Jesus of Nazareth to distinct him from other Jesuses at the time, that he's the Messiah or the Christ. He's a rabbi. He's the Son of Man. And then there are seven miracles and John actually uses the word signs rather than miracles. And a sign will always point to something other than itself. So the seven miracles mentioned by John point to a greater reality than what's currently going on. And the seven miracles, there's a little bit of conjecture over these, but these are the seven that I'll sit with. That There's turning water into wine, Healing an official son. Jesus was actually nowhere near him. He was probably about 20 miles away when that healing happened. Healing an invalid man who had been lame for 38 years. Feeding the 5,000 with two loaves. Sorry, five loaves and two fish. But there was more than 5,000 because it was only the men who were counted. Walking on water. Healing a man who was born blind and raising Lazarus from the dead. Now it's interesting out of those seven miracles that John records, five of those are only recorded in John's gospel. So he had some purpose behind why he was including what he was including and what it was pointing to. Then we have the seven statements, also known as the I am statements. Now when Moses was talking with God right back in chapter 3 of Exodus and he asked God what his name was, God's response was, I am who I am. And translated into the Hebrew, the, the name I am, um, more often than not when we have it translated in our Bible, is, is the name Yahweh. And so when Jesus looks at, sorry, not looks at it, when Jesus declares these things, and he declares that I am the bread of life and I am the light of the world and I am the gate for the sheep and I am the good shepherd and I am the resurrection and the life and I am the way the truth and the life and I am the true vine every time he used one of those statements that was prefixed with I am he was making this bold claim that he was Jesus Christ the son of God and it was for these things that he actually was attacked by the Jewish leaders. It was the blasphemy that they felt that someone would even pretend that they would be equal with God or even claim to be equal with God. That was what upset the Jewish leaders. Now, it's really interesting that when he uses these phrases, it's really deliberate. So after Jesus had fed the 5,000 plus with only a little bit of bread, it's after that event that he declares, I am the bread of life. It is after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead that he declared, I am the resurrection and the life. So he's really deliberate in when he used these. 
And the last group of seven I'll touch on is the seven witnesses. These are people who declared that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, in Hebrew culture and custom, if only two or three people got together and declared something that it was deemed to be true. Okay, two or three witnesses was all that was needed for something to be deemed to be true. John uses seven, the perfect number. So we have John the Baptist and Nathaniel and Peter and Martha and Thomas, John the, the gospel writer and even Jesus himself. Seven people declaring that he is the Son of God. So for the reader or the hearer to have life, life in Jesus, life with the Father, this is the purpose of John's writing. This is the purpose of his gospel. And it's life that is real and eternal and abundant and full of purpose and full of meaning. See, life is probably the most important theme that comes out of John's writing, out of John's gospel. And he does this so that people, when they engage with this, may go on believing and go on having life in Jesus Christ. That's his purpose. So I want to touch just briefly now on on this focus of life. And John uses a few um, sort of pairs of opposites to help bring attention to the life that's available in Jesus Christ. So the first one he uses is, is life and death. Jesus says this, he says, For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life and I'll raise them up at the last day. The message translation of that same passage, listen to this. This is what my Father wants, that anyone who sees the Son and trusts who he is and what he does and then aligns with him will enter real life, eternal life. Another pair that is used in John's writing is the, the images of light and darkness. Jesus spoke to the people and he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Another pair that is used is truth and lies. And to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. It's funny, that is often quoted, uh, misquoted, because they don't have that first sentence when people often quote that, that passage. Quite often you'll hear people will, will say, you know, the truth will set you free. No, Jesus is really clear that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and by knowing him is where the freedom comes from. He is the truth. It's interesting that... Right at the beginning of the Bible account, right back in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, when God declares things to be, it's the enemy, it's Satan who comes in to distort, to, to twist the truth, to bring a half-truth half or a lie into the situation. And we see that just bring effect right through humanity, even to, down to today. It's interesting when Jesus in John's Gospel talks about satan the enemy he calls him he's the father of all lies he says that his native tongue the, the the thing that he actually speaks is untruth 
And so Jesus brings a clear distinction there. There's another distinction he brings which follows this passage around freedom and slavery. That there's life in freedom, but there's death in slavery. And so he says, you know, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and we have never been slaves of anyone. I'll just pause there. How short is their memory? We are children of Abraham, they're saying. Did they forget the whole time in Egypt when they were slaves for 400 years? Did they forget the exile when they were taken away by the Babylonian Empire or the Assyrian Empire or the Persian Empire, whatever that was, and and got taken away and were slaves? And they're saying, we've never been slaves to anyone, they said. How can you say that we shall be set free? And Jesus replied to them, very truly I tell you, Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And this image of freedom and slavery actually carries on through many of the books of the New Testament. Paul particularly writes a lot about freedom in Christ. The last one I'll touch on is this image of love and wrath. And Jesus says this, he says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. And they're just a few of the images that John uses to bring up to the the surface the idea that life, life with God, life in Christ, true life, eternal life, is actually what is on offer in relationship with Jesus when we believe in him. And that's what John is writing about. So the means to having this life is belief in Jesus. A continuing, abiding and confident belief in who Jesus is and what he has done. Real life, therefore, is a personal relationship with God through Jesus. It's a life in the light and the truth and in freedom and in love. These are the things that we are going to see and we are going to unpack as we journey through John's Gospel. I'll let Jesus sum it up as John records it. This is probably the best summary of it. Now this is eternal life, Jesus says, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is the focus of John's Gospel. And so as we focus on John's Gospel, in this series, there's going to be an exploration into the and, and how we can actually equip one another as the church so that one, you may believe, I may believe, go on believing, not just this one-off thing, but we may go on believing so that others who do not yet know Jesus may also believe And so that we can find common ground with others and share with them the hope that we have in Jesus. And so what we want to do with this series and what John's gospel clearly does, and that's why we want to use this gospel um, to to go where we're going, to, to actually follow Jesus where he's leading us as a church, that it will do these three things. It will reveal reality. It will help us to pursue reality 
and it will equip us to share reality with others. That's what John's gospel will do in us and for us. That's what we want to do as we become people who are on mission with God. We want to have reality revealed to us and step into that ourselves. We want to live a life where we're pursuing that reality, that it's a day-by-day, moment-by-moment decision to follow Jesus. And then we want to be equipped on how we can share that reality with the people around us. We want to be a people who are equipped to have those conversations. We've used this phrase before about the chicken line, where we're having conversations with neighbours, work colleagues, family members, whatever it may be, and we actually step over that chicken line and we bring Jesus into the conversation because we are absolutely convinced that a relationship with Jesus, a relationship in Jesus, is the truest, most real thing that exists in, in our world. And it's the thing that actually brings true life for us. It's the thing that gives us purpose and meaning and identity. And we can't find that anywhere else. And as we start living that and we start sharing that with others, we will see that people will start to experience that themselves. This is God's mission in his world, that people would come to know him and people would come to know the son that he sent, Jesus Christ. And that is eternal life. So that's where we're heading over the next months. Um, We are going to start to get into chapter 1 next week and we'll work our way through the chapters slowly, really sitting in and allowing Scripture to speak to us, to mould us, to shape us, but, but more importantly, to reveal reality to us so that we can be people who step into that reality. We can be people who live and pursue that reality And we can be people who share that reality with others. Let me pray for us. So Jesus, I thank you that you have given us your written word. And just as John says at the end of his gospel account, if everything you did and said was written down, there would not be enough books in the world to contain it. But we have some words, we have some stories, we have some revelation of who you are and what you've done and it is enough for us to to give our life to, it is enough for us to, to use as the foundation for who we are and where we're going and through the illumination of your Holy Spirit that brings your word to life that places it from our head into our heart, that shapes us internally to become the people you see us to be, we pray that that would be our story, that that would be what you call us to do, the people you call us to be. And so as we journey through John's Gospel together, I ask that you would shape us and lead us and mould us to be your church here on the Central Coast and beyond And the end result of that is that people would come to know the reality of who you are and step into a life with you for your glory and for your honour. That's our prayer together. Amen.